Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The explosion of immigration into the region that followed forced the U.S. government into a fraught treaty-making process with local tribes. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series and Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. The podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. In our sixth episode, we discuss tribal sovereignty and how sovereignty relates to intergovernmental relationships and tribal identity. While the term itself is often understood as a legal recognition of tribes as sovereign nations that possess self-government, sovereignty also encompasses the cultural and historical traditions of tribal people. It is important to note, tribal sovereignty predates the United States and the U.S. Constitution. Hello, my name is Warren King George. I'm an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian tribe on my father's side. And on my mother's side, I descend from the upper Skagit tribe. Hi, my name is Danny Marshall and I am the current chair of the Stillicum Indian tribe. I've been working on issues supporting the cultural knowledge of our people since about 1980 and have uh, a passion for making sure that the expertise of the tribal people is shared in a good way. Uh, tribal sovereignty, it's a, a form of independence that provides opportunities for entities, governments, to perform their daily rituals, their customary rituals, their customary habits, their traditional habits without any uh, uh, oversight. Oversight might be kind of a polite word, but without any involvement from outside or overreaching different levels of other government. For example, our neighbors uh, would be the, the city government, the county government, the state government, and the federal government. Tribal governments fall underneath that, that uh, federal government branch. We've got to learn how to live side by side and operate side by side and perform our daily tasks, whether that be fishing or hunting or gathering berries side by side. Oftentimes those overlap. And so we've got to explain that treaty rights which are, many people are, are not uh, fully educated about and think that treaty rights only apply to fisheries or treaty rights only apply to, to hunting. And that's just the tip of it. That's only the beginning of it. 
And so these treaty rights are are unique for tribes and treaty tribes and for 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 tribal people. It provides a cover or a blanket that helps us navigate some of the confusing policies that govern our natural resources, that govern lands, that govern boundaries even. This this treaty right blanket that we have, it's not like superpowers, but it certainly does provide an advantage, opportunity to gather and hunt and fish and, and express ourselves in our cultural ways and cultural duties. That, you know, that's something that pre-existed pre-1855 and 1856 when the Denny party landed on Alki Beach. I like that, Warren. I thought like that you started with a, a, a term that that stated it's an ideal of independence because it really is something that we've had to strive for. So, tribal sovereignty is is not something that was easily attainable. It should have been guaranteed within the treaty and 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 what we fought for to maintain as a result of the treaty as we built relationships with the United States government, but it didn't exist at the level that it does now. The ideal is closer and much more identifiable now at this point where you can say sovereignty is about a government to government relationship. You think of sovereigns as being the the ultimate authority over a governmental entity, the United States, the United Kingdom, so Britain and the and the U.S. were were definitely there as a part of the early relationships with the tribes who didn't really have to think about what tribal sovereignty was. They just continued their lives on the land, assuming that their authority and and ability to govern their people and take responsibility for the land and the people would not change. Treaty in itself what's probably more about trying to say hey we can hang on to those things or we're going to do something different now we're going to be sharing the land with with new people coming in to occupy the land with us but but we're still going to maintain that that sovereignty that we had always held dear in in relationship with our people and the actions of our people and so I think the word you tried to avoid there, Warren, was was interference. So the the polite way of saying, uh, without the interference of other other sovereigns, uh, saying, "Hey, this is what you can and can't do." There, one of the things that we always hear as we work with people and try to educate them about how how this exists today is, "Well, why don't we just get rid of the treaties?" And and you see that continually within Congress. There's Probably every congressional session, there's somebody who thinks it's a wise choice to say, "Hey, let's let's get rid of the treaties. Let's let's change this." It's like, how do you do that? I mean, it's a relationship, a sovereign relationship between governmental authorities. We're closer to obtaining that ideal of independence now than we ever have been. At least the the recognition that there can be an existing sovereign relationship, government to government relationship between the tribes that can't be broken. People can accept that now. That's one of the most important ideals that we have 
that we need to fight for is that that sovereign government to government relationship. And so I think people understand that now more than they have in the past. It has taken decades, several decades to get where we're at now uh, on this understand this basic understanding, this uh, almost like a government official etiquette because etiquette didn't exist. You know, in in the 1960s, tribal people were still getting tickets and still getting taken to court and still getting fined uh, for exercising their fishing rights just to feed their people, just to feed their family. They were getting in trouble legally uh, for setting a net out on, on Green River in the 1960s and because the state believed that they that the natives did not have a right to fish uh, off of the reservation. And they also believed that they had the right to, to manage that fishing season for the natives. And there was this mi- huge misunderstanding about uh, the concept of, of sovereignty. And in the 1960s, in my opinion, sovereignty didn't exist in the 1960s. It barely existed in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, you got to see more of it. It was more prevalent. The 1990s, you know, people are starting to come around. You know, 2000, now it's part of the norm. You know, as long as, as, as the elders continue to fulfill their obligations by teaching and sharing that information and the value of our natural resources and the value of our tree rights, sovereignty will still maintain that level of priority that it has received over the past at least two decades that I've been around. And maybe some of that confusion that happens as a result of what the sovereign authority the tribes have within their territory is the whole idea that there's a reservation that's defined as as a a place of operations for a tribal government. And, And that's not what the sovereign authority over the territory is about. It's about the traditional territory of the tribal people. It's the land that they occupied and agreed to share with the new people. The promise was, you'll be able to continue doing the things you always did in your traditional territory. Hey, also, we'll we'll sign up a piece of land that we can designate as protected only for you, call it a a reservation. And we will do that for all the tribes. Uh, Every tribe will get a reservation in their own land. That's where things started breaking down and falling apart because the the true ultimate mission uh, set up by the the president at that time was go out there, you know, lay claim to all the land for the United States government. And ultimately, they were told to create one reservation uh, for all the people in, in the Puget Sound. Well, all the people in the territory in eastern and western Washington, one reservation. And, and that's what the original mission was. Things did, couldn't work that way. Of course, we had the treaty war that came about for various reasons. But part of that was because the eyes were open to the idea that, hey, we're really not going to get what we were promised here. Yesterday was the anniversary date, 166th anniversary. August 4th, 1856, of the Fox Island Treaty Council, where they came to resolve the issues that people were fighting for. And 
come up with new promises. And even then, there were still lies that were issued out. The, the ultimate lie being that every tribe will receive land in their own territory. I've got a quote that's one of my favorites that comes from the Fox Island Treaty Council. I'm going to share that now. This is Sam Young speaking as the leader of the Stilicum tribe uh, on that date in August 4th, 1856. He said, now what I want to say is this. My home is at Stilicum Creek, and there is where I want to live and die. I wish to tell the governor that every Indian loves his native land best. Every Indian loves his own people best. This is the motto. You can't come at us and say, you're going to get assigned over here, and you're going to get assigned over here. You're going to lose a connection with your land. You're going to give that up. And, and you're not going to get what we promised and expect us to be happy with that. And we're still waiting. Some of us are still waiting. Stilicum tribe never did get a reservation. Yeah, that promise is, is still unfulfilled for many people. It was never just given to us or offered to us. We actually demanded it and went ahead and borderline just took it. And that was thankfully from the wise warriors of that era and and the warriors extended families, their their allies and their relatives from all in all directions here, north, south, east, and west, all came to their aid and and said, Yeah, let's 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 make a stand here. These these people need a home. You know, those warriors in 1856, the, you know, my hands are up to them. They really, they really sent a message to uh the politicians and to the you know, some of the militia groups that were that were here and, and you know, kind of being like the muscle for Governor Stevens said, we're not going anywhere. This is a, this is our home. We're not going to relocate to another village that's been selected by by one of the uh, officials, one of the local uh, politicians. We want a place that we call home. From the 1850s until 1930, the government planned to assimilate the Indian people and and. And their hope was that these reservations would end up being dismantled and taken away and, and and people would just, they would lose their entire identity. Tribal people would disappear and cease to exist. The tribal people just weren't going to go away. The identity of the people, the, the sovereign authority and connection that the people had with each other was long lasting when, and would continue to exist. So at that point, the Indian Reorganization Act was put in place to incorporate tribes into a democratic organization. It, in writing, gave us direct authority to operate under constitutions, bylaws, and things that would make us more powerful. But it, what happens if you don't have a reservation? And so many things happened until the 1970s when they said, oh, you know what? We really don't have to recognize these off-reservation Indians anymore. If we never provided a reservation, can we start calling these people unrecognized? A federally recognized tribe is one that, that existed as a part of a reservation. What happened was that the federal government didn't and doesn't like to be called out on what they did wrong to and about the Native Americans. They don't like to be reminded of that agenda. You know, They were very open about it. And they had laws that prevented Indians from being in certain towns, in certain districts. 
there was an effort that was aimed at suppressing and minimizing natives in their own usual and accustomed areas. You know, you're not supposed to be here. You have a reservation. These efforts, some of them were real obvious about suppression, you know, creating these barriers and these hardships for tribal governments to proceed forward. Some people made a lifetime career of fighting Indians in court. The late Slade Gordon was his name. He was an Indian fighter and made it known to people everywhere that he, you know, he enjoyed uh, attempting to minimize uh, and do away with treaty rights. Warren, that's why I still can't eat Gordon Fish. <laughs> that was his family company. So his his greatest desire to fight against Indian people was just about self-profit. <laughs> yeah. The phrase, uh, the, the importance and value of place. Um, most Native Americans, most Coast Salish, a lot of our identity can be communicated through place. As an example, my late mother comes from the Upper Skagit tribe. The Skagit River Valley is all that's part of me. As I, I identify as, as, as Upper Skagit through my late mother and my late grandmother and, and late grandfather. Uh, but I, I also identify as, as Green River. Uh, through my father, Seuss Creek is is his home village, and also the White River, uh, also part of my father's uh, traditional area. So the importance of place plays a role in our identity. Archaeologists and anthropologists and ethnographers and scientists, you know, they they've verified our existence here for over fourteen thousand years. In reality, all they had to do was have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with our tribal elders here, and they would have established that within a, a few minute conversation. You know, there's some people who rely on data. Well, uh, their their data simply supports what our elders have been saying and what they've been teaching for thousands of years. You know, it's got its pros and cons. Uh, I'm not too crazy about the idea of tribal member becoming institutionalized, being afraid to leave the reservation boundaries because they don't want to get judged. They don't want to get stared at. They don't want to get mocked. And so in order to avoid all of those uncomfortable situations, they simply stay here in the reservation. I did a lecture at at our tribal school to some fifth and sixth graders. It was a biology class. And I was talking about like Washington. Um, the sockeye salmon run. And there were students in that class who have never seen Lake Washington. And it's really only a you know a 20 minute drive down down to 167. But it also got me thinking about this idea of people just not comfortable enough about themselves and about uh, about leaving this protected area, maybe their homelands. They don't want to leave homes because they're protected by by their parents, by their aunties and uncles, by their cousins, by their grandparents. That's something that Native people do. I mean, all all families do it, but but I think Native families have a a higher degree of it and have a tendency to really watch out for their, their kin, for their family, 
probably because they've been exposed to bigotry, because they've been exposed to judgment. They've been exposed to negativity. They don't wish that for their nieces and nephews and their sons and daughters. They don't want them to, to know what that ugly part of the world is all about. Uh, you know, and it, I get it then by not allowing them to, to leave. They're not going to have that, those experiences. That was a shock to me that we're hearing some of the, that a majority of the students in the class have not ever seen Lake Washington. They've Googled it. They've seen it, you know, pictures of it. They've heard stories of their, their uncles and their brothers and sisters and their grandpas and, you know, fishing on Lake Washington. But you know, that was the extent of it. But as you get as we get older and as we prepare our our younger children for the realities of this world, and they'll you know they'll spread their wings farther and and venture out and venture longer. Um, so I do you know uh, anticipate that they will uh, learn how big this world is, learn how you know how wonderful and beautiful it, it can be. It's not always gloomy and not always you know, it's not always a, a place of hardship. In a place of, of of dread, it can be a, a wonderful, good place. Just like you know, the experience of going up to the mountains when you go up there and you're picking the berries and you're eating handfuls of berries. You know how it's worth it going for that uh, hour and a half drive, and you know that all that uh, it's worth it. Not having access to your phone and your your mobile phone doesn't have a signal up there. And you're checking it anyway. You're still checking. Find yourself checking your phone, but your bare, your fingertips are stained, and your lips are stained, and and you're swatting at the bugs that want to uh, that want to taste your blood and want to drink your sweat, and you're, you're you're just enjoying that. Well, that same bravery, that same that same attitude can apply to to the big cities as well. So you go out and go for your adventure, and and hopefully. Take this all in, you know, because this is what our ancestors, this is their work. The idea of revisiting these places, revisiting these trails, revisiting these waters and getting familiar with it. Because in a sense, that's that's one perspective on, on Native identity. Being able to go to the water and, and, and wash your face in, in a nice cold creek uh, or, or being able to go down to the, to the beach and dig some fresh, fresh clams for your fresh clam chowder or being able just to walk the trail, walk the trail with the nettles on one side and, and the, the red huckleberries on the other and the ferns up ahead of you and the tall alder and spruce and, and cedar all you know and on the hillside there and you're listening to all those sounds and you're taking in that aroma, the smell of the, of the fresh greens and that pure oxygen coming off of all those plants. Yeah, that's, you know, that's in itself an experience that uh, can in many ways explain uh, our identity of, of why, we, why we call this place home. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. 
This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Sklalem Lummy.